Today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. If you'd like to follow along in the Bibles in the pews, um, the pages 819. Uh, in this section, um, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in his second letter, talking about repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 16. <clears throat> Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, that, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his, and his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling." I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Good morning. It's great to be back in Winnipeg this morning, and especially we're grateful to be at Central worshiping with you. I want to thank the Kings because they have graciously hosted me and my wife and daughter. Uh, Manna, can you wave? All right. She's getting shy, but she's just performing because she's really not shy. And so she's sitting right up here, right behind Tim and Darlene. I hope you get the chance to meet them. They are definitely my better half. I can't do math either, so now you know that. <laughs> but it's great to be back in Winnipeg, and really, I'm grateful for your hospitality. We have been welcomed so warmly. You've treated us so many ways that we like some of them. And uh, really, we're very grateful to be here. We are. This morning, the topic I was assigned to preach is not one that I would have chosen uh, if I had known that... I wouldn't have chosen this to come up and preach to you on a, a tryout Sunday. But I do what I'm told, and so this is the topic Jay gave me. I was assigned to preach on repentance from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. And I thank you for Miles for reading that for us. 
As I think about repentance, I think about an experience that Manna and I had at the playground a couple of days ago. We had had a busy day here at church, and so that we got home, and Hannah was taking a rest. And Manna and I, and Eva and I, we, we all walked to the park together. And so we walked all the way to the park, several blocks, and we got out, and Gary and Eva were sitting at a picnic table watching Manna and I play. So she swung on the swings for a little bit, and she went down the, the slide, climbed all over the equipment. And then as she came down, she noticed this little bowl-like thing that spins, right? And so she said, ooh, help me, Daddy, help me, Daddy. And she wanted to do it. So I put her up there, and I gave it a gentle spin. And, and you know what happens when you give that thing a gentle spin? It starts turning, and it goes round and round. And pretty soon she said, help me, Daddy, help me, Daddy. And so I got her out picked her up, and I did what any good dad would do next. I had read the sign, after all, and if you look closely at this sign, this sign says that adult supervision is required. So I picked her up, and I sat down in that chair with that that spinning thing with her in that red bowl-like thing, and when I sat, apparently I sat at an angle, and around and around we started to go. At first it was pretty funny because, I mean, have you ever seen... A grown adult sitting there holding a child, laughing as hard as the child, spinning around on this playground equipment. But pretty soon, it, it was getting, I was getting really dizzy, and to be honest, I was afraid we were going to throw up. And so I started trying to get out of this bowl that's spinning and spinning and going faster and faster with, with momentum. And I couldn't get out. I mean, I know I'm so tall and everything, but I genuinely could not get out of this bowl. And not only that, but I'm holding manna as we're going round and round. So I'm thinking, good grief, if we fall out, I'm going to fall on her and that would be bad. And so I did the only thing I knew to do. Gary! (laughs) Gary, help me! Help me, Gary! And Gary finally heard me. (laughs) He finally heard me and then came over and, and stopped this thing. And we're still spinning like this. He helps me get out. And I'm afraid I won't be coming to Winnipeg because I couldn't pass the sobriety test. (laughs) But I share that with you because that's what comes to mind when I think about repentance this morning. What comes to mind, the reason it comes to mind is that the word repentance literally means to, to turn, right? It literally means to turn. And so we were turning, but there's another sense in which I thought about this when I was reflecting for this sermon. Sometimes when we sin, sin is a lot of fun at first, isn't it? Paul talks about, or the writer of Hebrews talks about how Moses chose not to stay in Egypt and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a, for a season. Sin can be really, really fun at first, but once that thing gets going and starts spinning round and round, eventually we want to get off and we face a problem. There are some sins that we cannot get out of all on our own, and we have to call for help, and we have to have the help of others to help us get out. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he spoke of sin this way. He said, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Stop for just a second and look back at the words in verse 1. 
Paul says, but you, but, but we, all of us, we were dead. Did you catch that? Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses. You can't do a lot when you're dead. The Psalms say that you can't do a lot when you're dead. Some sin you just can't get out of by yourself. Paul continues, but God, and isn't that what grace is, but God? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Some kinds of of sin we simply cannot get out of on our own. And when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, that's the kind of sin that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 7. I want to walk through what's going on before we reflect, before we see what we can learn from 2 Corinthians about repentance. The story begins with Paul, and Paul is in the place we know as Ephesus. It's modern-day Selsuk in Turkey, but it's to the right over here on your screen. And Corinth is just across the Aegean Sea at the northern point of Achaia, right on this little isthmus that connects southern Greece and northern Greece. Corinth is there. Paul writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus and he sends it to Ephesus and shortly thereafter sends Timothy to go and check on Corinth and see how things are going. And Timothy goes to Corinth. He does what Paul had expected him to do. But when Timothy comes back, we learn that things apparently did not go as well as Paul had hoped in Corinth. Paul had written some strong things in 1 Corinthians, really challenging the church to be the church. And so when Timothy came back with the news that, Paul, things are not at all going well in Corinth, Paul changed his travel plans. Paul had planned to leave Ephesus and then go to Macedonia, which was just to the north of Corinth. And then on his way back from Macedonia, he would stop in Corinth. But instead, on his way to Macedonia, since he had heard how badly things were going in Corinth, He stopped in unexpected and he surprised them. And apparently the visit did not go at all like Paul had hoped it would go. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks of this visit this way. Reflecting on it, he says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one I have pained? And then if you look down in verse 5, Paul speaks of someone else causing pain. Now, if someone has caused pain, he caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Paul had a surprise visit to Corinth, but it turned out that it was a very painful visit. You say, well, why was it painful? Reading between the lines in 2 Corinthians, very likely what happened is Paul and another brother had a very intense confrontation with each other. Paul showed up unexpectedly after having said some very hard things to Corinth about living as a Christian church and as Christian disciples. 
And one brother apparently did not think Paul had the authority to speak so boldly. And so he challenges Paul's authority. He challenges Paul's apostleship, which is a lot of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. Is Paul a legitimate apostle? And perhaps the triggering point was that his brother even goes so low as to question Paul's motives as a disciple, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Maybe Paul's motives were not so pure after all in writing to Corinth. And so when all of this goes on, a painful confrontation happens. And unfortunately for Paul and for the church, the church does absolutely nothing when this happens. Maybe the church thought, we'll just stay to the side. We'll just stay out of it. Paul and this brother can can have it out, but we'll stay out of it. But what that said to Paul is that Corinth actually agreed with the brother. Maybe Corinth didn't accept Paul's apostolic authority. Maybe Corinth didn't really think that Paul was a true apostle. Maybe Corinth did not really trust Paul's motives. And so with all of this going on, Paul pulls up camp and goes on north as he had originally planned. On the way out, apparently it occurs to him that he'll write a letter. And so he sends another letter. He sends a letter to Corinth that we're going to call the tearful letter. This is a letter that we don't have in Scripture, although Scripture speaks of it frequently. In the book of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2 and in chapter 7, Paul speaks of a letter that he wrote through many tears. Read about this letter with me. He says, I wrote as I did, speaking of this tearful letter, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Skipping down to verse 9, Paul says, This is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And flipping over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, Paul speaks of a letter that made Corinth grieve. And he regretted writing that letter, at least at first. Again, that's a letter that we don't have in our New Testament. For some reason, the Holy Spirit did not want to include that letter in our Bibles. And that's okay. He didn't ask my opinion. (laughs) We don't have that letter. But what we do know about that letter is that not only did it grieve Corinth, but it grieved them to the point that they eventually repented. Titus had brought that letter to Corinth, had read it to Corinth, and then Corinth sends Titus back to Paul with the news of what has happened since he wrote it. And speaking of what happened in Corinth, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 6 and 7, this. He says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Look down at verses 13 through 15 now. Paul says, therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. 
And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Titus comes back and brings Paul good news. He brings Paul good news that Corinth had repented. They were no longer questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. They were no longer challenging his motives and resisting the teaching that Paul was giving from the Lord Jesus. Instead, Titus brings word that this is what happened in Corinth. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Apparently when Corinth got that letter, they were really shaken up. Some were afraid that they had completely blown their relationship with Paul for good. That made some people angry. It made some other people sad. But it made everybody eager to set the record straight. We actually don't agree with the brother who doesn't think you're a real apostle, Paul. And let us be the first to show you how much we believe in your apostleship. Corinth repented. And when they repented, some amazing things began to happen in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul speaks of a sinner in Corinth. For a lot of my life, I thought that this sinner was the sinner that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but that's not the case. The sinner that's spoken of in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11, is the brother that confronted Paul and challenged his authority. And when Paul speaks of this brother... He speaks of a punishment that's caused by the majority of the church. A punishment by the majority. And what that refers to is that when Corinth repents collectively, this brother who challenged Paul loses honor in the sight of the entire community. He's kind of cut off and standing alone by himself because he's the only one that holds his position. There's a laser in this thing. That's pretty cool. Anyway, he's, he's the only one that holds his position. And so because of that, he experiences shame. But that shame, in turn, holds him accountable for the sin, for the wrong that he had done. The repentance in Corinth hold, held the entire community accountable. And another possibility that came out of this repentance is spelled out in chapters 8 and 9. Because Corinth had repented, the ground was finally clear to do really good ministry together. You know, it's hard to do really good mission, really good ministry when sin is in the camp. That just doesn't work if you ask Achan and you ask Joshua and you ask Israel in Joshua 7 and 8. It just doesn't work. But when you get sin out of the camp... Then new possibilities emerge, and Corinth was able to bless the poor saints in Jerusalem with their contribution. New opportunities, new possibilities emerged from the repentance. Things were so much better after Corinth's repentance that five different times when Paul writes this, he says, I rejoice, I rejoice, I rejoice, I rejoice, I rejoice. Look in verse 4, well, look in verse, yes, verse 4. Paul says, in our, all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In verse 9, Paul says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. 
Then down in verse 13, Paul speaks of joy again. He speaks of rejoicing when Titus comes with news from Corinth. And then as he ends this thought in verse 16, he says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in all of you. I wanted us to walk through this because unless we understand the backstory in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians does not make a lot of sense. But when we understand this backstory, then we can begin to make application and really apply it to ourselves, which is what I want us to do now. There are a number of things that come to mind in terms of how do we apply this to us. And they all take me back to the farm that I grew up in on in North Alabama and southern United States. It was a, a rural, rural area. There were not a lot of big towns nearby. And so I grew up in a very small area and we had a farm, small farm. We had a garden. And every year we would plant that garden and we would mostly plant corn and we'd plant different kinds of peas and, and other vegetables. But I worked on that farm from the time I was a little boy until I was a, a little bit bigger boy. Um, and working that farm, I learned a few things that come to mind when I reflect on First Corinthians, Second Corinthians. And the first is that if we want a harvest, if we want a harvest, we first got to break the ground and sow the seed. That's true of agriculture, right? And I understand Winnipeg is a farming area, yes? This is true of agriculture, but the truth is, this is also true of repentance. It's the same way. And so we break ground and we sow seed in the same way that Paul did. If I could boil it down really simply, the way that Paul broke ground and the way that he sowed the seeds of repentance in Corinth is through what we'll call difficult conversations. These are the kind of conversations that, to be honest, I don't like to have. My guess is you probably don't like to have either because they're really, really uncomfortable. They bring up the fact they bring us face to face with the fact that sometimes when we have a conflict, there are two different sides to a story and at least at least two, sometimes more than that. And the way I see things with my information and my interpretation may be very different from the way you see things with your information and your interpretation. And a difficult conversation requires that we talk about the differences in our interpretation and our facts, our information. Difficult conversations. And that requires some humility to say, you know what? This is how I see it, but I could also be wrong. I could be missing things. I could have blind spots. They're difficult because not only do they challenge our sense of what happened, difficult conversations go to the heart, go to our heart. And they feel like somebody threw a hand grenade in the middle of our emotional mind. As one person said, there's no diplomatic way to throw a hand grenade. There's just not. Difficult conversations bring us face to face with very difficult feelings. Feelings like extreme anger or even extreme sadness or anything in between those. And ultimately these kinds of conversations are difficult because they challenge our sense of who we think we are. Am I really as love, lovable as I thought I was? Am I really as competent as I thought I was? Am I really as good as I thought I was? They bring us face to face with things about ourselves that we might not want to face. But in these difficult conversations, we break ground that can eventually lead to repentance. I'll give you an example of this. A couple of weeks ago, I had 
I was on Facebook. I had finished my work for the day and was heading home. And so I checked Facebook right before I left. And there on my wall was an angry, I mean angry, message from a brother in Christ. It wasn't posted to my wall. It was posted on his. This brother had been in an interview process for about six weeks with a company there in Montana. Six weeks and at least five different interviews, he had come in and had interviewed with him. And at every step, they led him to believe that the job was his. And finally, they brought him in for a sixth interview. And he thought the sixth interview went well. That's what they told him. They gave him the impression the job was his. But then he never heard back from them after that sixth interview. He was curious about what happened, so he followed up with them. And come to find out, what they said is, no, you actually don't have the job. And so he pressed them for an explanation. They had led him along for six weeks. Why aren't you going to be hiring me? And what they said is that you actually offended one of our customers when you spoke to them on the phone. The only issue was my friend never spoke to their customers on the phone during the interview process. He never did. Their information wasn't correct. And I understood his anger immediately when I read, started reading his post. He got on Facebook and he started raking this company across the coals. Running them down in every possible way. All of his creative flair coming out in vitriol for this company. And so I immediately had a thought. Maybe you're thinking the same thing as you hear this. He's hunting for a job and future employers will often check your social media. And so I thought, I've got a choice to make. This makes me really uncomfortable to walk with him in this anger that he has. But for his own good, if somebody needs to have this conversation with him. And so I did. I got in touch with him. I called him by his name and I said, his name. I said, I want you to know that I'm very angry too. The way you've been treated was not right. And if I were in your shoes, I'd probably be just as angry as you are. But I said, I've got something that keeps coming to mind as I read your post. I said, do you mind if I share that with you? And he graciously said, sure, go ahead. And so I asked him a question. I said, what's going to happen if a future employer goes back and reads your Facebook page and sees you raking another company across the coal, even with the best of intentions, perhaps? What is that going to do for your future chances of employment? I said, I understand your anger, my brother. <laughs> I understand your anger. But I don't want your anger now to negatively impact you in the future. It was a difficult conversation. A very difficult conversation. It was difficult for him to hear that because he was angry and he wanted to rake the company across the coals. It was also angry, for, uh, also difficult for me. Because I don't like entering that kind of conversation even when it's necessary. Difficult conversation. Folks, that is where the ground of repentance is often broken. That's where the seed of repentance is often sown. With people like you and people like me that are willing to go there and have difficult conversations with people when they're necessary. And so that raises two different questions. One question is, am I the type of person that could initiate that kind of conversation with someone else? Is my character of sufficient quality that when I go to you and say, brother or sister, I have a concern. Is my character of sufficient quality that you would take what I say seriously? Can I go and have that conversation with you? But the other side of it is, 
Am I someone that other people could come to with that same kind of conversation? Am I humble enough to recognize that, you know what, I have blind spots and I am a fallen human being as are all of us. And I could be in the wrong too. Am I humble enough to hear when someone comes to me with that kind of question, that kind of conversation? First principle of repentance I would bring out of 2 Corinthians is that sometimes we break the ground and sow the seed only through difficult conversation. Another principle I would bring out also takes me back to summers in North Alabama when we would plant and then wait for harvest. We would break the ground, we would sow the seed, and then almost always after that we would start hoping for rain. There's only one catch when you think about rain in the spring, and the south especially. If you're going to get rain, you're going to get a storm. And usually what happens when those storms blow in is you get heavy winds and it blows down tree limbs. Sometimes it knocks out your power. Sometimes it does other damage. But what happens is unless you get those storms, you won't get the rain. And unless you get the rain, your crops simply will not grow. So I've learned that harvests in the south especially are especially better if you have a few storms along the way. And I believe the same thing is true when we reflect on 2 Corinthians. That the seeds of repentance are often watered by the storms of strong emotion. I'll be honest with you, I don't like getting angry. (laughs) I really don't like getting angry. I don't like being extremely sad either. And there are some other emotions between those that I'm just not all that crazy about. I'd rather be laughing and having a good time myself. But sometimes those negative emotions, or what we call negative emotions are the very storms that water repentance. In other words, sometimes repentance won't happen unless I'm willing to walk head-on into my anger or head-on into my sadness. Seeds of repentance are watered by storms of strong emotion. Thinking back to my friend when he and I had the conversation, and I met him and I said, Hey, have you considered that this might hurt you in the future? There were strong emotions on both ends of that. My friend was already very angry, and understandably so. I would be angry too. He was very angry. And then for me to speak up and say, hey, have you considered that this might actually be kind of stupid? I didn't say that. (laughs) But for me to say that, not that way, how do you think that made him feel? How do you think it made me feel? It was very difficult to have that conversation because I wanted to be angry with him. But that was not what would help him most then or in the long term. We both had strong emotions. And just like in Corinth, there were strong emotions. It really broke Paul's heart to write what he calls the tearful letter. It really broke Corinth's heart to hear that tearful letter. There was anger and sorrow in both instances. But in both instances, that was part of the process God used to bring about repentance. And so the question that comes from this one is, can I take the heat? Can I take the heat? Can I stand the storms of strong emotion that God often uses to water the seeds of repentance? Can I stand the heat of someone else's strong emotion? When I go to you and you you really bristle at me because... You think I'm stepping into your business here. Can I stand your emotion? 
your sadness, your anger, your fear, your anxiety. Can I stand that? On the other side, can I stand my own emotion and my own anxiety about going and approaching somebody else with a concern for their spiritual life? Can I take the heat? I need to be able to take the heat. I need to be able to stand the storms. Because again, the seeds of repentance are often watered by the storms of strong emotion. There's a third thing, and this gets a little bit brighter from here. Some of this is kind of dark, but it gets brighter. A third thing is that when we were working on the farm in the south, I often noticed that in the heat and in all of the work, the exhaustion, sometimes tempers would flare. And sometimes people would say something that in their normal state of mind they might not say. People get irritated with each other. We get impatient with one another. That's just life. That's normal. But when that happens, and it follows up later on, when things cool down, we need to take time to debrief with each other. That's really what Paul is doing when he writes 2 Corinthians. He's writing to Corinth to clear the air with them. And when we go to someone and we say, hey, I love you and what you're doing is actually not good. When we do that and strong emotion comes, at some point we need to follow up with them and debrief. Speaking with my friend, my friend that I I talked to that I've been mentioning so far, I didn't know how it would go. And that's part of the reason for my strong emotion. I, I didn't know how it would go when I talked to him about this thing that he had done. But turns out he heard me graciously. He heard what I had to say. He heard me out. I looked back on Facebook later, and you know what? He had taken that post down. And then he texted me, and he said, hey, we should meet up for coffee. And I said, yes, let's meet up for coffee. And we set up a time to meet for coffee the very next morning. We met for coffee, and we chit-chatted about this and then that. And over our time of visiting, we eventually got to what happened the day before. We talked about what happened. We talked about what it felt like for both of us to be in that conversation. We talked about the things that it brought up at stake. You know, can I really be a true minister if I don't hold my brother accountable? You know, and he's he's saying, can I really do good for my family if I let my anger get out of control? We talked about all of that. We debriefed. And when we talk to other people, we need to debrief as well. I like the metaphor of replaying the tape when it comes to debriefing. What that means is we talk about what we went through as if it was a movie That we had all just watched. And so we come and we talk about the conflict. The conversation. As if we're third party observers. And then through that what happens is. Misunderstandings get clarified. Misperceptions get corrected. And the script of our relationship is left uncluttered. It's left clear for the future. So that what we think happened. Doesn't adversely affect the future of our relationship. When we have these difficult conversations, we debrief. This is part of the follow-up that sustains the harvest of repentance. And then the last thing I think about from Paul, reflecting on 2 Corinthians, is that when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's writing from the perspective of this conflict has already ended, and it ended well. Corinth repented. They sent word through Titus, and now Paul is sending Titus back with 2 Corinthians, and he's doing his part of the debrief as well. When Paul looks back, he speaks in 2 Corinthians 10 of a salvation without regret. 
And I believe what Paul is speaking of when he talks about not regretting is that he doesn't regret the pain that he calls Corinth. And Corinth doesn't regret the pain caused by Paul's tearful letter to Corinth. When he writes back, Paul is, again, five times he speaks of joy. He's rejoicing. He's glad at what happened in the difficult conversation that took place. And I think what we learn from that is that when we have these difficult conversations, when we do face the storms of strong emotion, and then we debrief, in the end, all of this is totally worth it. It is totally worth it. My friend that I confronted, I'm really glad that we had that conversation. I'm really glad he responded as quickly as he did. Because he had other interviews in the days after that. He took down that post and now two weeks later I can tell you that he's happily employed in Missoula, Montana. He's employed. That post did not adversely affect his employment because he did what he needed to do with it. He took it down. He dealt with his anger in better ways. And now looking back, he told me when we had the conversation, he said, thank you for being the voice of reason. Not how I expected him to respond, but he said, thank you for being the voice of reason. He's thankful we had the conversation. And now knowing that he and his family are taken care of by this new job, I'm thankful that I was willing to go there too. No regrets. It was totally worth it, as painful and as unpleasant as it might have been, at least for a short time. When we face the fires and we have these conversations, I believe we can look back and we can also say, wow, that was totally worth it. I want to close with a story that that comes to mind that maybe illustrates that, the idea that it's worth it. There's another sister in Montana, and she's... She's a part of a ministry team that I've been leading for about the last month and a half. The grand opening is in Great Falls going on right now, actually. And I've been praying for 700 people, 700 people that would be there, many of whom would be first-time guests. And so in praying for that many people, we've also had to prepare. A lot of preparation has gone into getting ready for grand opening. And so this sister and I, we lead, uh, I lead a team, she's been a part of the team, to get information sent out into our community, mass mailings. And so we've done four of these. We've sent 2,228 pieces of mail four different times, and it's a lot of work. You might not think that, a lot of work. The last mailing, we were meeting to, to label these pieces of mail and stamp them, and she told me a story that I'd never heard before. She'd grown up in a Christian home there in Great Falls. Christian family. Her parents are still there to this day. Really, really solid Christian family. And she did what she knew she should do, or her perspective, she should do when she graduated high school. She went to a Christian university there in the States and and hoped to further her education and advance her future career. While there, she fell head over heels in love with a boy. And the relationship was fast, the relationship was good even, but eventually this young man broke her heart and left her devastated. It challenged her faith, questioned, made her question a lot of what she believed even. And so she left the Christian University and she moved back home to Montana, but she left her faith behind when she moved to Montana. In her own words as she was telling the story, and by the way, she gave me permission to tell this, As she tells the story, she says that she began living a very hard life. She was drinking, she was partying, she was really living it up. 
um, a very unchristian lifestyle for her, a very unchristian lifestyle. And eventually she hooked up with a, a classmate that she had known from high school. They didn't like each other at the time, but now that she's living this lifestyle, they apparently hit it off really well. They eventually moved in together. And before too long, uh, word came out that she was pregnant. She was expecting their first child together. She hadn't been in church for quite a while. But she tells me, or as she told me this story, she said that at one point in her pregnancy, she got this knock on the door. She went and answered the door, and there were a couple of elders from the church that met her at the door. And by the way, I'm not sharing this because I agree with how this was handled, but it does illustrate our point this morning. The elder met her at the door, and they had a conversation, and at one point in that conversation, he shared a scripture from Matthew 7. Matthew 7 talks about that the way of Jesus is very narrow, and there are few that are on it. And these elders challenged her with that. They said, you know, the way of Jesus is narrow, and they asked her, which way are you going to go? You know, you're trying to have a foot in both worlds, and that isn't working. Which way are you going to go? And they told her, they said, you know, if you keep going the way that you're going, we're going to have no choice but to pull away from you. And so I asked her, I said, and I almost called her name. I asked her, I said, how did, that, how did that go when they confronted you like that? She said, well, it didn't go very well. She said, I, I sent them away pretty quickly and slammed the door. <laughs> but then what happened next was, was pretty incredible. She said that conversation stuck with her. And it wasn't all that long later that she actually went back to church. She went back to church and she one day went forward and she told the congregation of what she had done, how she'd been living. She asked for God's forgiveness. She asked for the congregation's forgiveness. She went back to church and they welcomed her back. Not long after that, she and the man she was living with, they set a wedding date. They decided they would be married at such and such a date. And she told me that two weeks before their wedding, which I'm assuming is when they set the date, Two weeks before the wedding, she moved out of this man's house and she moved back in with her parents so that for the two weeks prior to her wedding, she would have a pure relationship, which is what she believes God what God was calling her uh, to have, calling all of us to have for that matter. And so she goes back in with her parents for the last two weeks. They finally marry and as she has this child. She starts bringing the child to church with her. The child grows up in the and pretty soon, the husband comes to church too. He studies with someone, and eventually the husband is baptized as well. The husband becomes a Christian, and they raise this baby boy, and then the other part of their family in the church as well. If you fast forward a few years from that, the story gets a little untidy before it gets better. The marriage wasn't always the best. Marriage is hard, as we know. And so at one point, she and her husband had struggled so much that they actually divorced and spent a time separate. But over the course of time, they were reconciled and they later remarried each other. Now, out of that experience has grown a ministry passion that wasn't there before. Today, all of these years later, this sister is very active in our life groups. We couldn't do our life groups without her, without this sister. Today, she's an extremely evangelistic person. She's always talking about her faith, inviting people to come to church in Great Falls. 
She's always inviting people, trying to lead people to Jesus. She was part of our mission and outreach team that I mentioned a moment ago. Faithfully there, every time we had to label and stamp those thousands of cards to get them out to our community. And today, she's in Great Falls, I imagine, thinking partly about the ministry that will begin, I believe it's September 25th. It's divorce care. (laughs) She has a ministry for people that are divorced. Uh, She didn't start this ministry, but she and her husband co-lead this ministry in Great Falls as a way of offering support for people in Great Falls who are struggling with the fallout of divorce. Divorce care. What was neat about her sharing this story with me is I think I was more uncomfortable than she was. Because at some points I was questioning, I don't know if I'd handle it that way, or I don't know that I would do this, or, whoa, that's pretty crazy. But as she told it, she told it with a smile on her face. And she related it gratefully because that day when those elders showed up and knocked on her door and they shared that scripture with her and asked her which way she was going to go, that's the day that her life took a change of direction. And no matter what we might think about how we would handle that or handle it differently, it does raise a question for us and it's a question I want to leave you with this morning. And the question is, what if we could have that kind of impact on one another? What if we could have that kind of impact on somebody else, somebody that's not here this morning? The kind of impact that they'll look back on years later and they'll say, wow, that was the conversation when everything turned around. You were the Gary that pulled me out of the spinning bowl. What if you're that person for them? And the question is, will we go there to change someone else's eternity? I want to pray with us as we conclude, and then I understand we'll sing another song. Father, we thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you speak powerfully through it. Thank you for your spirit who indwells us and helps us apply your word to our lives. Helps us to be convicted. Helps us to be reassured. Father, I pray that this word that's been spoken would encourage where that's needed. I pray that it would challenge where challenge is needed. Father, in every way, I pray that your word that has been spoken would go forth and would not return void. I pray that your word would accomplish the purposes for which you send it. I pray you'd bless Central. With these words, I pray you'd bless me as I seek to live them as well. I pray for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we conclude this morning, there may be someone here who wants to make a public response to Jesus. There may not be, and that's okay. But if you are here and you'd like to make a public response to ask for prayers or to put Jesus on in baptism, we want you to know you have the opportunity to do that while we're all assembled. Why don't you come to the front if that's you? while Tim leads us in this song.